On today's episode of Family Flowers Only, I speak to Fiona McGuire. Fiona hails from Dublin, a mom, a psychotherapist and counsellor. Fiona first experienced grief and loss in her life at the tender age of nine years old when she lost her mom at the age of 32 to cancer. Unfortunately, tragedy would visit Fiona again when on her 13th wedding anniversary, her beloved husband Mark took his own life at the age of 38. Fiona talked to me about the grief and shock that accompanies suicide when there are no warning signs, the invasion of privacy that can sometimes come with a suicide, and that being resilient isn't always the same thing as self-care. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Fiona. You are so welcome. How are you? I'm really good. A bit nervous, but yeah, thank you very much As for I said me. to you, I'd be more worried if you weren't nervous. <laughs> it's very normal. So you've yeah. come down from Dublin. Is it Dublin you're from? I am. I'm yeah. from Dublin, yeah. I've been um, living in Bowmouth now, where I'm originally from, actually. Well, yeah, I, I'm back in Bowmouth now for about nine years. Okay, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so you were born to Nora and Seamus. Yes, so yes. I was born to Nora and Seamus in uh, 1971. Three, two brothers, mm. um, Connor and David, but they're actually, I'm the eldest of three initially, and right. now I'm the eldest of seven. Okay. Um, really happy. My mom was the most maternal, happy mammy. She was just, she loved her role as a mam. Really? Uh, yeah, really. And do you know what? Even as a child, I knew that. Yeah. Really? I actually sensed that. She was like so happy and loved her little, you know, place in life and loved being a wife, loved being a mother. She was like one of those moms, like you only had to mention you had like a little pain in your belly. We put you on the couch, you know, that kind of and thing. Boil and boil seven up. And oh, she was just, she'd keep you off school. <laughs> yeah, love it. Um, but it was all right back then in the 70s. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it was a lovely, lovely childhood. Really, wow. really nice childhood. And yeah, never really, do you know what? I, I suppose they were involved in the community. So mm-hmm. like... And what that brings us in the community centre down the road. So there was like shows and my dad was Santa Claus and, you know, all those. Yeah, so yeah, a real yeah. kind of happy-go-lucky. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. And so, you know, I suppose, obviously you're in here today to talk to me about loss and grief. Mm-hmm. And that's the gig that we have here, unfortunately. Um, and so I know that you have quite a bit of loss, but I suppose your first loss would be right in saying was your mum. Mm-hmm. She died... Yeah, she, unfortunately, it's funny because when we lived in Rohini, I only remember that that mammy, you know, she was happy-go-lucky and always had a smile. And then I can't, I think it was around 79, I remember my dad saying one day at the, at the dinner table, oh, we're moving. And I remember being absolutely, like, fuming. Wow. And I was eight and like all my friends did a little bit. So we moved to Port Marnock. Now, that might sound like for people who are very familiar with Dublin, you know, down the road or and it is. But actually, at that stage of life, it was like going to Kildare, like (laughs) honestly, because the roads were little tiny roads. It was it was kind of not rural, I wouldn't say rural, but it was very not (laughs) the country to you. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. but it was very like there was no transport, really. So a bus would have taken you maybe an hour. Yeah. And stuff like that. So I remember and I was in Billy Barry and I was dancing. I was doing shows on the gaiety and that wow. was a big thing. And so I remember when we moved out instantly. Everything changed. It was cold. It was the winter. And I think we moved out just before Christmas or just after Christmas. And yeah, it, she, she was different from the time. I remember the house being cold. I remember her not having maybe as much patience. There wasn't mm. as much laughter kind of thing. Hadn't a clue what was going on. We were in and out 
into Beaumont where my aunt, who was actually my godmother, her sister. I remember we were going in there more often, which was fine because we were very familiar with, with that setting, but we were staying a bit more. And then I think at one point, I just thought my mum had the flu. Like, you know, we were brought in and my mum was actually staying in the front bedroom in my aunt's house. The doctor were going up and down. And then that changed again and she was now in the hospital. Right. So I suppose back then, 79, 80, like you didn't really sit down and have chats with kids, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. way. Um, it was a bit, mm, what's going on? You know, don't really what's going on. House was always busy. And then one particular morning, I remember waking up and it was a Friday and I had a no school uniform day. We changed school um, as well at this point, which again, didn't kind of raise flags with me. I didn't know any different. Obviously, this is what you do when you move from one place to the next. Mm. And... I had a non-uniform day that day and I had this beautiful maroon dress that when you twirled around, it went right out. I loved it. I remember waking up and the house was busier than normal. Could hear people downstairs. I was like, God, sounds very awake. My aunt then called me into her bedroom and said, look, I have to tell you something now. And a dog, our dog had, had gotten run down about two days before and said, your mum has gone up to my brownie up and with holy God. And honestly, in the moment, I was like, right, because she'd gone into hospital for about six weeks. So, I had that disconnect anyway. We weren't allowed into the ward, obviously, back then. And wards, I'm sure, cancer wards back then were obviously um, much scarier than they are now. So I hadn't seen her at bar once. She was allowed to come out into the corridor and we met her in the corridor, the three of us. And I was like, OK, didn't really know what that meant. So I was like, what well, can I still can I still wear my dress to, to school today? Like that, like really didn't get it. So unfortunately, she had um, found it. She was diagnosed and died in six weeks. So she had leukemia, multimyeloma. And she was only 32. And it was 1980. So like, it's funny, like I know of people now who have it and who have been treated back. You know, absolutely. They can treat it now. It's fine. Yeah, it's treatable. Yeah. And I think I suppose any cancer really, uh, like, well, a lot of cancers, I suppose, that younger stage of life, sometimes it can be go against you because you obviously cell generation and stuff like that. So maybe she'd got it when she was older, she might have been fine. But yeah, that was 1980. And I just remember, I just remember how, how surreal it was because it was these, like I, I could sense that there was this kind of what's going to happen. Right. Because, you know, of, of the time. And I think initially we were just kind of cocooned within. We were still in my in my aunt's house. And um, we were there and that was kind of where we were, where we were living at the time. And my dad was coming and going. So my dad would have been two and a half, three years older than my mum. So my dad was about 35, 36. So young. So young. She was 32. Yeah. That's wild when you think back on it. Three kids, you know, like nine to four. I idolised that role, like I idolised it. But um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was strange because even as, a child I knew there was questions I couldn't ask back then whereas now I don't think a child would feel that probably mm. you know I just knew you know I think photographs were nearly put down yeah that's the way it was then wasn't it you know and listen D- did you feel like so you were nine mm-hmm. did you you know I'm always kind of interested to when I mm-hmm. talk to people who lost their their parents young you know mm-hmm. did you feel um you know, obviously you felt a deep sadness that your mommy was gone. Mm. Did you feel like you could talk about it or was it like, I can't talk about this? Oh, no, I, I didn't yeah. talk about it, no. And, and that I, was no one's fault. It was just the way it was. And I think like it wasn't ever said. It was not expressed that I couldn't talk about it. It was just this knowing because the adults didn't know how they would handle that. So it's like one thing I always say about kids actually is kids know they don't know something. 
They'll yeah. always know that. That's, that's yeah. very powerful. Yeah, it's true. They do. And then the worrying part about that is what they'll do, then do, I think. And I think I was trying to do that too. was like, well, what do what do I not know? What is it that they don't want to tell me? And so you probably could sense the energy and, and feel and the whispers maybe. And mm, the, yeah, totally. And like the whispering around you and being like, you know, the eldest and then being a girl and the boys were kind of always class. It was always Fiona and the boys. So, mm. so I was always kind of a little bit, I was, you know, it was only a year between me and my first brother. But yeah, I, I, I knew it was a subject that was very difficult. So that so I already started to people place nearly at that stage within grief. And I think a lot of us do that because we're afraid to upset or burden the other person. And I remember thinking, no, they'll get sad wow. if I ask them, like they'll get sad. I mean, even to the point I used to go to bed in my bedroom, which I had a lovely bedroom. I, I didn't you know want for anything. But I remember thinking, oh, my God, if I just go back to my house in Rohini, it'll all be mm. back to normal. And mm. the, we'll all be there together. And like nearly blaming Port Marnock for this. If we hadn't gone to Port Marnock, this wouldn't have happened. But that was me just, I suppose, nine trying to make sense of something that I don't think the adults could at that point because it was six weeks. And also, I suppose the cancer was quite rare then as well. Hugely. Yeah. Yeah. Because, as I said, we only went in once and we were brought to the corridor. And my poor mom, God love her, her, God her, love her. yeah, her, her leukemia was that bad at that point that she'd actually um, ended up getting gangrene from from the leukemia. So I remember she came out in a Zimmer frame. I like 32, 32 and she was walking towards and she was trying to hug us and stuff like that. But one of those, I don't know whether it was once or twice, but I do remember being drove into the car park in St. James's Hospital and she could wave from the window. So I remember that too. But yeah, it was just, I think everyone was so scared of cancer. It was nearly mm. like, if you say the word, you're going to catch it. <laughs> yeah. Like multimyeloma is very rare anyway. And then her form was extremely rare. So. Yeah. Could I ask, um, did they take you to the funeral back then? Yes. They did? Um, yeah, no, I don't think we went to the grave, but we went to the mass. Right. Yeah. Because there was an awful lot of that back then as well. Mm. The kids shouldn't go to the funeral, mm. keep them at home. And mm. I think it's really important, isn't it? That yeah. they're involved. Yeah, I remember the whole lot from start to finish. Yeah. Came back and did a tap dance for everybody in my blue poncho and blueberry. That was knitted especially for the occasion. I know, oh, wasn't it funny? I know, but yeah, and getting 50p's, like 50p's like getting a 20 yeah. euro note like then. <laughs> so, yeah, and people like just kiss. Like, it's funny as well, like as a kid, getting hugged and squeezed by people and strangers that you don't know is very strange. I bet. Yeah. So you're a bit like, mm, I know that's a nice thing that you're doing, but I really would rather if you didn't. Yeah. You know, So, but people don't know what to do. Yeah. So I suppose life really changed for you then and then not laugh long after that. I suppose your dad kind of met his own way and you were raised by your aunt. Yeah. So my aunt and uncle, um, Breed and Colm, were absolutely amazing. They were always really in our lives, like very much so, because there was, as I said, seven years between my mum and my auntie and she reared her when, when mm. their mum died. So okay. very different, but very close. And for whatever reason, they didn't naturally have children, did all the tests, did all the just never happened for them. So they both had great careers did two holidays a year, both had cars. So they had this lovely life that my mom didn't have. Like if, if I'm honest, she was doing a, a, a whole different thing. But when mom died, my dad, um, you know, initially I remember him being in and out, in and out, in and out. And my dad, I now have an amazing relationship with him, but I just don't think he could actually deal, mm -hmm. you know. And I do, like we, we talk about it all the time now. And it's like there was no counselling back then. And if there was, it was a bar stool and I wasn't really a drinker, you know. So he just, mm -hmm. I think, tried to run. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. like run away from it. Like, you mm-hmm. know, I can't handle this. And I think we were, I suppose, with three kids, a constant reminder of what you had. And so rightly or wrongly, and I will say wrongly, he mm-hmm. decided that this was too much for him. He came in and out for, I'd say, up to about 13. It was very unpredictable. I always felt safe at home in my aunt and uncle's. There was just no question. I was absolutely cared for. I had everything that I needed. There was obviously adult arguments going on that I have no clue about still to this day and really don't really want to know because it's not mine to to have. But um, I can understand both sides Mm. and how everybody felt. Um, But I'd say then at around 14 is when he kind of, that became more consistent. And yeah, I just went through teenage years then as a normal teenager. It's really strange how quickly you become accustomed to your new life. Yeah. Mm. You know, and you just want to be the same as everybody. So you kind of want to. Leave it to one side. Yeah, it's like, well, I won't talk about that now. I'm not going to make a fuss about that because I don't want really to be that about me. Like, do you know, so it's strange how you quickly just slip into someone else's shoes. nearly. Yeah. You know. And even though you, you know, as you said, put it to one side, inside, were you feeling grief for both of them, I suppose, not having your own mum and dad there? Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny. It's only on reflection. Right. In it, I didn't feel it. Okay. It's as an adult looking back at that child, you feel real bad for her. Oh, my God. The inner child work I've done on on her is unbelievable. I love the inner child work. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's just, you just, well, you don't want to be different. You're 14, 15, 16 or even before. I think the 10 to 12, because he was in and out, it was kind of, okay. this is just how we do it now because my mom's not here. But I would like cry my eyes out for her. But then I wouldn't tell anybody. Yeah, I know. It's awful. Like when when you look back, but I suppose you just want to be the same, especially in those teenage years. And so I suppose you had a great life then with your auntie and uncle. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward to when you're 19. And so 18. 18. So yeah, 18, which is, I'm going to take back that year because it makes it even more <laughs> at the time. Not so much now, but um, yeah, I had my, I had a, one serious boyfriend that didn't work out. I was like 15, 16. And then I fell head over heels for a boy who literally kind of lived to the back of me. So local boy, everybody knew. And we were besotted. But I suppose I wasn't too worried about getting pregnant. Okay, yeah. But I understand that. Yeah. I, I, I understand that. So it wasn't that there was this dramatic, oh, my God. It was nearly like, oh, my God, I'm pregnant, <laughs> you know, um, and thrilled from the moment I found out. Wow. Obviously. Oh, thrilled. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was 1989. I literally was the snapper. <laughs> and because <laughs> it was still seen. It, re- it, it sounds strange, but it was still such a huge taboo. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And I do remember my my aunt saying to me, you know, when I told her and she was like, oh, Fiona. And she was like crying and she was like, well, you're not having an abortion and you're not getting married. And I was like, I know and I know. So yeah. they were so supportive. Amazing. I, I had her and we were I was at home with her for five months. And I love that. They were amazing. They really helped out because she wasn't the bestest of babies. And we then moved around the corner, literally around the <clears> corner and rented. Uh, in those days, they had a lot of the houses where you'd rent half. So I had the the, the bottom half um, and the back garden. So I literally would have walked up and down that road as a child. So I was still in my area. I still, you know, I had, you know, lots of family around as did he. So we were happy families now for about five years, mm-hmm. four, maybe four. 
And unfortunately, um, Leon's dad had an accident and that kind of a really severe accident. Actually, he fell about 27 feet off a scaffolding and he was very unwell for a long time. And that put a huge impact on the relationship. Wow. Huge impact. Um, Leanne, I think, was three. Like I was 22. He was 21. You know, we were so young living mummy and daddy and, you know, mm. but it did put an impact on the relationship. And I suppose I had to become even more responsible then. And I think sometimes we outgrow I think girls as well, I grow boys a lot quicker. Mm. And I think I, I grew um, him and I felt that, you know, the relationship wasn't stable enough, I think, probably. So we went our separate ways, but that was devastating. Really? Yeah. 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 That loss again, yeah. you see coming yeah. back into your life. Absolutely. And I was like, oh, I thought I had my happy ever after. Like, I, yeah. this was it. This is all I ever wanted. I was nearly like, nearly repeating what my mom had been like, I was like, oh, and I got a girl first, just like her. And it was like, now this was not conscious on any level, I think. But no. I, in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, this is lovely. This is what I wanted. This is everything. Because I remember even in school, the girls were like, I'm going to be a teacher and I'm going to be, and I'd be like, I just want to be a mom. I just want to be a mom. I think I started to grieve my mom and dad then. Because I suppose you'd built your own little family and it's like, it's not like you're trying to replace, but maybe it became so important to you to have your unit and you had it. Yeah. And then for that to kind of fall apart must have been just a huge blow. Yeah. yeah, I think that was when I started the whole "What's wrong with me?" Yeah, and loss. You, why does this keep happening to me? Yeah, what is wrong? Like, why can't anything just stay the same? And I think that's when the whole, oh God, now I, I I don't want to look forward to that. Or you know, it's so easily done because you just your go to is that it's not going to work out. That is your mm -hmm. default setting. Mm -hmm. So it's like. You know. Especially when you're taught that as a child, you see, mm. isn't it? Like, mm -hmm. I suppose if, if that is something that you learn as a child, it's really hard to yeah. not know any different, you know? Yeah. And so from there, I suppose you had a year or two and then mm -hmm. you uh, met another uh, lovely man. I did. I met a wonderful man. So, yeah, we were, I was single for about a year, which I'd never been. I'd gone from teenage years into adulthood. So I was single and I had this lovely year of being single and enjoying that and uh, I stayed in the 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 home that we'd lived in we shared as a family and um, these four lads moved in across the road and one had kind of shoulder length blonde hair and the other three had dark hair and a couple of my friends come down to me at the weekend and have Chinese and we nicknamed named them uh, Goldilocks and the Tree Bears <laughs> So we were like, oh, Goldilocks, the tree bears across the road. And we'd be looking out and we'd do things in the garden and stuff like, how embarrassing. That's so we'd do funny. things in the garden just to kind of catch her attention. And Leanne had a group of, she would have been about six at this stage. So she had a little group of friends on the road and used to go up and down their bikes and their skates. And this particular house, uh, where Mark uh, moved into. He he wasn't Goldilocks, by the way. He was one of the bears. Oh, that was my next question. Yeah. <laughs> he was one of the bears. <laughs> so um, they had blackberries in their garden. And the kids used to like demolish these blackberries. So I remember one day I went down and I was like, no, Leanne, you can't be doing that. Like, you know, that's not your garden. Come out that garden. And he shouted, out, you know, I oh, know she's grand, leave her alone, you know. And I was like, oh, are you sure? Yeah, yeah. So that was fine. A um, couple of weeks went by and my pals were down again. And I was waving them off at the at the front door, at the gate of the, at the front of the house, saying goodbye. And as I was doing that, a taxi pulled up across the road. But I didn't see anyone get out. I was like, well, OK, that's strange. And I went to go in. Next of all, I heard someone going, Fio. I was like, what in the name of God? Obviously, it was like late and I was on my own. So I was like, what's this? Anyway, it was Mark. 
So Mark was like, oh, how are you? And he was laughing after frightening me. So we ended up chatting at the gate. And I would never do this. And I, anyone who knows me will know this. I genuinely would never have the confidence to do this. I was like, do you want to come in for coffee? I've never said that to anyone in my life either. So he was like, oh, yeah. So in he came. And honest to God, we sat. He sat on one side of the room and I sat on the other for the entirety of the evening, just drinking tea and chatting. And I think he left at about seven. So really from then, the, every week for the following week, he every day I'd come home, there was a different, it was the same teddy and there was a different colour teddy of the same teddy every week with a little card. Oh my God. And I was like, oh, no one has ever like been like this with me. And it's so romantic. So just, it just, it just slotted into place. And all of a sudden we were, like he still lived across the road. Um, and we just became boyfriend and girlfriend. And I remember there was about two weeks later, there was a, we, he had a party in his house and we were, myself and my friends were all over the party. And we were sitting on the stairs as you do at parties. And I was, I said, do you want to come around to my house for dinner tomorrow? And he was like, oh yeah. So I forgot all about it. The next morning knocks on the door. He said, you're right. And I was like, he said, you asked me for dinner. I said, oh my God. <laughs> so around he came and sure they all fell in love with him. And they were like, oh, Fiona, he's such a lovely fella. He's so this, he's so that. I said, I know. And we just, we just were inseparable from then. And yeah, that would have been 96. The following July, we got engaged. And didn't we, hang around. Like, no. And so young. And what age was we then? We would have been 27. Yeah, yeah, I was 27. And he was a year and a half younger than me. So he was 25, 26. And, but he was wonderful because we went in to get, get the ring in, in town. And he got flowers. And I was like, I don't want flowers. Oh, they're not for you. And we jumped into a taxi. And I thought we were going for dinner. And he brought me to my mum's grave and proposed to my mum's grave. Oh, my God. I know. And he'd asked my uncle for my hand, which I didn't know, on Father's Day in the June. And he said, no, I wanted her to be the first person. Oh, my God. I know. That tells me everything I need to know I about know. him. Like, sweetheart. Yeah, it was so lovely. So that was that was our engagement. And then the following August, we got married on the 1st of August. Um, and then literally the following I think it was January or February I found out I was pregnant and I had Evan in 1999, September 99. So thrilled with life. Um, yeah. First boy, his first child. He was besotted with Leanne anyway. Really? Ap listen, absolutely. Oh, he just, he loved being her stepdad. Yeah, when he had Evan then it was like, oh my God, I have a son. And he was, he's one, the only son and with three sisters. So he was the only boy, so he didn't have a brother. So that was wonderful. So that was Evan. So and he was obviously just beside himself, like like mm. life was just so good. He had his mm. girl and he had his boy yeah. and you yeah. guys were living the dream, living as they the dream. say. Yeah. And so then it didn't take you long and you had another son. <laughs> I know. And we were like, OK, well, it took us, I think it took us nine months on Evans. We were like, well, the nine months and then the nine months. So we better try a bit early. Sure, listen, two yeah. weeks later or something silly. But um, and then Alex was early as well. So Alex was born then 2001. So life, I suppose, was great. Yeah, I suppose you stopped mm -hmm. there with your, your kids. You that had your three, done, you had yeah. enough, three yeah. and done. And then if we come all the way forward, yeah. then it was 2011. 2011. you guys were celebrating your 13th wedding anniversary. Our 13th wedding anniversary, yeah. So, so could you bring us yeah, to that day, yeah. I suppose? So I can go back slightly yeah, then, sure. I suppose. So yeah, that day, it was a bank holiday weekend. Our anniversary was on the Monday. Uh -huh. So... um. We, I was actually, 
my job at the time, I was working for a marketing company at the time, and they was their first time to ever close for the two weeks in August after the recession. The companies were trying to, you know, save money and stuff. So I was uh, put on like forced two weeks holidays, which was great, suited me. And Mark was taking his holiday. So the Friday evening of the bank holiday weekend, he actually went out with his family and spent an amazing evening with his family on his own. Um, it was literally just their immediate family. And I went out with work. And we both had two great nights. And the following day, which was the Saturday, he said, now, myself and the boys are making a big meal. We're going to be your waiters. We're going to be the chef. You have to go upstairs and get yourself ready and we'll tell you when to come down. So they went into town that day, got all their ingredients and they had a lovely boys day. And then I was sent upstairs to get ready and they were going to call me. So the boys loved this and they had their little tea towels, you know, over their arms and all that. So down I came, table was set. We had a blast. Did the whole three servings or yeah, three, three servings. Yeah, yeah, three courses. Three courses, sorry. Mm -hmm. Did the whole, absolutely gorgeous. And we took, I would think, three rolls of camera if you were to do it in an old fashioned camera, like just picture after picture after picture after picture. And it was fantastic. We had the best time. But the following day was the Sunday and it was, there was a surprise 40th for one of Mark's friends. So Mark was 38. He was the youngest in their gang. And, um, we had a surprise party, so and we were also had asked his sister if she would have our children on the the Monday as as a so we could go away. And we'd booked a night away in a hotel on the Monday. And we was like, well, that works out great. We'll go the Monday instead of the weekend. Had our little bag packed and all. So on the Sunday morning, we dropped the boys over. Well, Mark dropped the boys over to his sisters, and then we headed over where the party was was actually where his mum and dad are from. So we had decided to drive there drop the car at his mum and dad's house and go across to this party, leave the car there and then he, we collected tomorrow. So met his mum and dad on the way up. We had a little chat that they were going off for their Sunday dinner, had a little chat with them, got to the house. It was amazing. I think Mark had, I think we might have got there at three o'clock and we left about nine. And Mark had two bottles of Budweiser, not even cans, like two bottles. I was going around getting everyone's drink, more photographs were taken. Um, just amazing, fabulous day. And we jumped into our taxi and we were on our way home. And as we were on our way home, there's a, a pub, a local pub beside us, literally two minute walk, three minute walk. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as we were passing, he said, oh, we'll go in and have a bowl of chips. Like, why we haven't got the kids? Like something we were never able to do. And I was like, gee, Percy, yeah, let's go in. So when we went, we sat at the bar and we had our plate of chips and Mark didn't have a drink. And I think I had a drink. And I said, oh, I said, uh, my phone's out to die. So I asked the barman if he would charge my phone just with the kids not being with us. So we did that. We chatted to neighbours, friends, everything. And we left. And it was funny because, and this is what I'll say when I go back, when I said I wanted to go back, it's that one of the things that had happened that summer, and I would say it started around maybe June and it was Father's Day. And he'd gone out with his brother-in-law's, he, as I said, he's no brother, so it was his brother-in-law's and his dad. They had a lovely day out um, in their club where, where, they're, where they're from. And I'd been speaking to him just before he's about to leave and great crack all laughing, putting me onto the phone to, you know, other people. And I knew they were on their way home. So a period of time had gone by and I said to Leanne, Jesus said he's taking ages to get home. Didn't really want to ring his mum because I said that would worry her. But I ended up having to ring. I was like, oh, just making sure they had a good night. And he said, no, his dad's here. He's fine. I was like, God, he should be so I was ringing and ringing and ringing, no answer. And then I'd say I must have phoned him 10 times. It was so out of character. I mean, really, I was convinced I had him dead and buried and 
next while he answered the phone. I was like, are you okay? Where are you? I just fancied to walk. I said, it's 11 o'clock at night. Like, what do you mean? Just And like, where he lived, where his parents lived to our house would be a good six miles. I said, like, oh, what are you doing? I said, that's right. You shouldn't be walking. I'll be fine. I just wanted to walk. I want to clear my head. I said, okay. So when he came in, Leanne gave out to him. She was like, oh my God, my mouth had been up the walls waiting for you. And he was like, not abrupt with her. Just off with her. Mm. very unusual I mean literally if she was looking for something he'd be like that to her like I'll deal I'll get that off your mum for you so I remember thinking that's strange next morning not a bother I told him I said like Jesus I said like Liam was really upset Mark I said that was you know he went God. oh he was devastated went to her and he actually I wouldn't say he was crying but he tears and so I was like I'm so sorry and I don't know why I was thinking Jesus sorry about that and they made up and everything was fine that was one and then another day he said to me maybe in the July he said Put his hand in his chest and he went, oh, I don't want to go to work. Now, this man was a workaholic, idolised work. Like, literally all he, it was his passion. And I, I say, I honestly mean that he loved, he loved the people, he loved what he did. He, you know, he worked with builders, he worked with all these different characters. So he had a great, he had a great working environment as well. And he said, uh, I don't want to go to, work, go to work. And I remember sitting there and I was getting ready for work with three kids you know, you can imagine how busy the house was. And I said, Jesus, I don't want to go to work either. But I said, we three kids in a mortgage. I'm sure that's what you, that's what you would say. 100%, yeah. But now I go, <clears throat> oh my God, why did you not go? You don't want to go to work. That's not right for you. But again, you don't want to think. And I'm trying to think the other the one thing was, I think he, he just got emotional over, oh yeah, he got emotional over something. I've never, very, very sensitive man, but he wouldn't, wouldn't be a crier. Right. And I remember we got emotional over something. We were talking about something and there was tears in his eyes. And I said, are you are you crying? And he was like, I haven't talked about that for a long time. That was it. Like, that was it. That was the size of it. They're the three things I would now on reflection say, definitely. But I would never. There were isolated incidents mm-hmm. and maybe three weeks apart or four I weeks mean, apart. To me, that's they're not red flags no. at all, really. No. Um, because you just, yeah. you know, I mean someone going for a walk like that of course you would but you're kind of relaxed that they're back and you're like oh okay thank god there's grant he's fine yeah you know whatever just having a moment exactly and you'd even start thinking you don't want to be the type to you start thinking that i sound crazy if i start going is there something wrong why are you going for a walk you know what i mean you just kind of feel like you You, don't want to make a fuss sometimes yeah and then also you know you're also saying he was out with his family he was you don't want to sound like you're trying to impose on that day or yeah i don't want to be that Maggie wife. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't. So I was like, look, like, let it go, let it go. Yeah. So the... The night of your anniversary the, then. Yeah, so the so the Sunday then, I said, we were going away on the Monday, we were heading back home. So walking home from the pub, I said, he was breaking his heart laughing at something and we were walking and talking and I said, God, it's great to see you. I said, you know, back to yourself. And, but I, and it's funny because when I say I said that, even though he wasn't being different in between those instances, I just knew he was a little bit more stressed, but okay. not like depressed around like that. Mm. I said, God, you, you scared me a bit, I said. And I kept chatting because it was that like, you know. And when I looked around, he wasn't to the side of me. And I had to turn all the way around and he was still in the spot where I'd said that to him. And he went, oh my God, are you scared of me? And I went, what? <laughs> I mean, that would be like saying you're scared of Mr. Snuffle up because I yeah. mean, honest to God, <laughs> like honestly. I said, would you stop get up the road? I said, no, I said, it's just good to see you happy and... And I said, we'll have a great, we'll have a great uh, time tomorrow when we go to the hotel. And we actually were going to Hidden Valley camping with his entire family on the Friday with the kids and the cousins. And we'd bought a, a he'd even put up a, 
a barbecue, one of these disposable barbecue, not a disposable, you know, one mm. you could take apart and bring with you. So we were talking about that. And we were like, oh, this would be great. Get in the door. And my Leanne had gone out with her pals and they used to, what they used to do back then was instead of getting a taxi home, they'd get a room in town in a hotel and stay together and they were safer and then they'd come home. So she knew she wouldn't see us the following day. So when we walked in, there was a big bunch of flowers and there was a bottle of champagne and a card for us. And I was like, oh, isn't that lovely? And then I said, oh no, I said, I'm after leaving my bloody phone charging at the bar. He said, go on, I'll get it. So he said, be back in a minute. So I remember, I think he had a drink of water and I sat down and on the on the kitchen table and I said, I'll go up to bed. And any other time, Cathy, I would have went to bed. 100%. But I thought, no, anniversary. Better be at least a bit attentive. <laughs> I'm not saying there's I a promise you. or anything, but I'll do I hear you. Yeah. So I said, no, I, I'll, I'll stay where I am. And the next thing I knew, I was awake. And I obviously dozed. I'd had the Saturday. I'd had the Sunday. I was knackered. And I woke. And when I woke, the second I opened my eyes, my charger was in front of me on the table. And I thought, what? He would not let me sleep on the couch, even for a split second. He'd be like, up them stairs. He'd be raging tomorrow. Come on, get up to bed, get up to bed. And I was like, where the hell is he? So I knew instantly there was something really off. I didn't know what it was. And I said, right, okay. Where is he? We'll go and find him. And I could hear the sound of silence. My house was mental. I had two boys, 10 and 11. I spent my life going, stop thumping him, get off, you know, get off the wall, get, you know. So it was always loud. So this house was just like, I could hear. It was, it was a, definitely a sound of silence. That's all I can say. So I said, right, I'll go up and see. You must have fallen asleep. So I was walking up the stairs, walked up the stairs and looked into the bedroom. And I lived in a terrace house uh, at the time. So it was like small little London. And I looked in and when I looked in, the bed was untouched. And I thought, OK, this is really strange now. And as I turned around, I saw my dressing table stool on the landing. Now, that is not unusual. And the reason why that would be unusual is because when Mark worked, worked with builders, he would <laughs> he would say, uh, oh, this builder, he used to hide money and plans and all this. And he'd, ha- he'd put them up inside of the attic. And you know the way lads would jump up on the landing and they'd just get in. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, as a girl, I couldn't do that. So he used to say to me, oh, Johnny's calling for this envelope. It's to the left of the attic. And I'd get my little stool out and I'd stand up and I'd get the money. And I saw the stool and I went, what the hell is that doing there? He must have left that there earlier. And I said, right, I'll phone him. And as I dialed the number, the minute I dialed the number, I went over my head. And I could hear his phone ringing over my head. And I was like, why is his phone ringing in the attic? So I absolutely knew instinctively my life has changed forever. I just, I didn't know why. I didn't know what, what I, I I just knew. It was this feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I went, oh my God, what's wrong? And then I went, oh, he's after falling. He's after been getting money for one of the builders or doing something. He's after... So I got onto the, the stool and I went to lift up the attic, like the door, as you would. And I'm actually still injured. I was only at the chiropractor last night from this injury. And from putting my hands up with the strength that you normally would, Mark was actually lying on the attic door. So I obviously went into that and and did a bit of damage. But when I did it, I could actually see, which I knew, and I don't know how I knew, because it doesn't sound like you should know this, but I could, I knew I could see the back of his knees, kind of this, the underside and kind of side of his hand. So I started to scream and I was shouting. I was like, why aren't you answering me? I was shouting, shouting. And I remember getting down and... Um, I lived in a cul-de-sac and I remember running out into the cul-de-sac and then the dog started barking and 
running back into the house and I, I just didn't know what to do. So I said, okay, I'll ring my brother. So I rang the brother next to me in age and I think it rang once and I realised he was in Kerry and I was like, oh my God, I can't ring him. So I hung up. So I said, I'll ring my other brother. So then I went, oh God, he was, he's DJ. So he was DJing in Lily Bardello. So he never, I don't think he'll ever forgive me for this on, on the night. And I rang and I don't even know what I said. I, I, I think I was saying Mark's in the attic and I don't know why he's in the attic and it's not answering me and I, I don't know what to do and what will I do and he still says to this day you're the biggest drama queen but he said I knew there was something in your voice that was different and he said I had to leave so he left it was obviously and sheer terror and panic it was it was like I just it, nothing was what I was seeing wasn't connecting I couldn't make sense no it was mm -hmm. like I can't process this what is this I, I just can't so um, by this stage, um, and some of this is very like enmeshed. I don't know when it started and stopped and that kind of thing. But I, at this stage, I, I realised it was one of my neighbours who was a lovely neighbour was in the house. She was like, Fiona, what is going on? I said, Max in the egg. And I, I don't know, I can't get to him. And she said, oh, Fiona, have you found the police? And I was like, what? I said, what would I be found the police for? Like, just can someone help him down kind of thing? And then I realised, okay, all right, okay, that has to happen. So obviously she might have, I think she, another neighbour come in, someone phoned the police anyway. And we stayed upstairs because I kept saying, will you call or maybe, you know, someone, or will you try the door? And so um, I think my brother had got there at this stage and he he brought me into my bedroom, which is like, it would, you'd nearly see the attic door from, from, um, from my bedroom. And... Before I knew it, there was a bang guard stand in my bedroom. So she said, Fiona, can, can we keep you in here for a minute? Just have a little chat with you. And what's happened? And I briefly told her what's happened. And she said, OK, well, she said, um, there's a couple of guys outside and they're just going to try and, and help Mark down and stuff. And I said, oh, great, you know, grand. No, still kind of new. And what really hit me was when she went to bring me back out, it had gone from just the couple of people that I mentioned earlier to three policemen on, on the in the landing maybe a fireman on every second step down the stairs um, and I had to be brought down. And I remember being nearly lifted down the stairs because I was finding hard to walk. And I just remember each one of them putting their head down and couldn't look at me. And I was like, oh, my God. you know. And I, and I was kind of like smiling, not smiling, but I was kind of looking and going, hiya, hiya. And they were putting their head down and I thought, why aren't they looking at me? What is so wrong that they're not looking at me? As you tune into today's meaningful conversation, we at Counselling Online are so delighted to support and sponsor Grief Ireland. Grief is a complex emotion and we all cope in our own ways. If you find yourself seeking a safe, confidential space to share and explore your feelings, Counselling Online is quietly here for you. Our motto is Wherever you are, we are. Should you feel like reaching out, we are only a click away. www.counsellingonline.ie Take your time and be well. So they brought me into the kitchen, you know, said, look, um, we think something, you know, we're very wrong might have happened to Mark and we're not sure and we need to get him down but unfortunately they can't get him down so we're going to have to cut the land and ceiling out so I was like okay and 
I mean, looking like for your permission nearly to do that. They just have to, yeah. Just letting you know. And I'm like, okay, okay. So that was going on. And um, she asked for Mark's next to kin, like outside of me. And I told him that. And he was like, we might have to ring Mark's parents. I said, uh, gave those details. And I remember my brother ringing Leanne. And I could hear him saying, you know, no, 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 your dad's just had a bit of an accident um, when your mum wants you home. She just can't talk to you right now. So if you can just get yourself home. And I started to, I remember starting to, to vomit in the back garden. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And the house was getting busier and busier. And then Jessica came down and asked for me to be um, brought back in and people to be whoever had circulated in the house at this stage. And she said, I just need to talk to Fiona. So. She said, I need you to sit down. I need to tell you something. And I was like, OK. And she said, um, and then I knew the second I looked at her, there was tears in her eyes. And she said, I, and she said, no, I need you to take this in. And I was like, yeah. And she said, uh, and then I realized when I said, no, don't say this. Please don't say this. And she was like, John, I have to. And I was like, please don't say this. And she said, I'm so sorry. She said, Marcus taken his own life Fiona and he's passed away and I just was like I'm on my wedding anniversary I'm going out for dinner I'm we're, we were talking about what swimming costume I was going to wear later on and it's just and then I went into autopilot you nearly go and it was that instant I had that I'd say minute a minute of and her saying I'm so sorry and my brother and uh, you know and and I'm looking at him going but he, no, it's ridiculous. Don't be so silly. That can't be. And and then I went, oh my God, can I get you a cup of tea? To the banker. Can I get you a cup of tea? You're really upset. Sit down. You know, and she was like, no, Fiona, I need you to sit down. And and it's it's just so, you don't know what time it is, how long you've been there. You know, I, I in my mind, I turned around and my aunt and uncle were there. There was more neighbours there was more people and then the coroner had a, and all this was happening and um, I remember someone coming down then and saying we have Mark now he's no longer in the attic and we'd like someone to identify him and I remember saying no no I can't do it I can't do it and my uncle and I've never unfortunately he passed away four years ago this December and I never got to thank him really actually have a really good conversation about that because we just never got around to it but he graciously said oh, I, I'll go and he came down and he said, Fiona, he looks absolutely perfect. He just looks like he's asleep. I really feel, you know, you should go and, and see him. And the sergeant came down and said, Fiona, I, I really need you to, to go and see him. I think you, you want to. And were you scared at that point to go I and see him? I was so scared. I was like, like, because the t all the timings were just like literally. It's literally like hours. a handful of hours later. Hours. And your like brain was, is like, nope, I, not happening. Yeah. So I said, OK. And when I went in and this will always stand out in my mind for me. It's so strange how our brain goes into protection mode and, and other modes. I don't know what you'd even call it. But when I went to walk into the bedroom, I went, oh, no, 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 no. And they went, I said, he's on the wrong side. And they put Mark on my side. Of the bed. Yeah. And I went, that to me was so, that that was ridiculous, like. And he said, I'm so sorry, let us, let, let us do that for you now. And they brought me back outside and they put Mark on, on his side. And I, honest to God, Cathy, he was like as if he was asleep. He was on his side of the bed and I just got into bed beside him. 
and I hugged him and I I could hear lots of this and that going on but just for those I think maybe I think they let me stay with him for about 20 minutes half an hour it was just me and him until his poor mum you know had to come and it was the most surreal moment of being in my marital bed like and next of all his mum was standing at the end of the bed wailing and I was looking going I you were asleep when I got up this morning like I left you looking like that and got off because I got up first that morning so it was just it's, you just can't process it you just can't process it and his sisters and his dad and you're just you I honestly every few seconds when I was with him I think he was messing like I know that sounds surreal with all these people in your house but I'd be like he looked that peaceful yeah it's like your mind's playing tricks on you because that's his side of the bed that's his pillow he when I look at him in this place that's what he looks like his eyes are closed and he's asleep so it was just my god he was 38 you know like and and he was still a young young man it's not like even I don't know what I had envisioned in my head. I think I'd heard stories about suicides and, and Mark had hung himself, um, unfortunately. And I had all these horror stories in my head, but that wasn't the case for Mark. I can only say that for Mark, but that wasn't the case for him. He was absolutely perfect. But as much as that was a very, I'm very grateful for the, the guard really pushing that on me. Thank God they did, because I think I would have really regretted that. I think also it's, what was difficult about it was they have to obviously because everything your home is now like a crime scene. He's a he's literally evidence, so they have to leave. Um, <clears throat> you know what 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 he used around his neck, so that's there and everything. Your whole home, like we were f- very private. We lived in a cul-de-sac, so we would always be kind of respectful of each other of you know our neighbours' privacy. And but so I would never really have had lots of neighbours in the house or anything like that. They would knock at the door and stuff like that. But um, there was just people in my house and. It was noisy and loud and crying and like. How did that sit with you in that moment? Were you just, did you feel like going, get the hell out of my house? I was just like, I felt like a goldfish in a goldfish bowl. And like, all this was going on around and you could see it's nearly like it's over there, kind of. The only way I describe it's like getting the epidural. You still know you're having a baby, but like it's a bit over there. <laughs> you know, that kind yeah. of a feeling. And like there was coroner vans in the cul-de-sac. Every single neighbour was out, every single child was out there was cups of teas and plates of sandwiches going around the cul-de-sac like it was like a circus and all the while your two little boys yeah were so at their auntie's house they were in their auntie's house and they were supposed to be going to Tato Park that day God loved them that was their treat and the decision was made and I can't remember I, I, I don't think I was involved in this but that Mark's best friend would go and get them and bring them so everybody I think Peter said this too they all went to mum and dad's house after his brother's passing so we all went to my auntie and uncle's house and that be kind of came our because obviously the house is, is a crime scene too so um, I think people forget that because until yeah, it's so you had to you were told basically you need to yeah, leave yeah well yeah be, well the, the way they look at it is is like a crime has been committed when I say crime I don't I'm not saying suicide is a crime no yeah someone has 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 been murdered technically and they have to figure out how yeah, yeah. and um, so you, you can't be there so we uh, went down to, to my to my aunties and, and um, Martin who was Mark's best friend said he'd bring them over and again, I wasn't even worrying about them coming over. I was literally like, when I say I wasn't worrying, I was 
like I couldn't even consciously like say their names. I couldn't. I was like, I, I wanted to say, how am I going to tell them? I couldn't even get it out. I was like, like as if I was just shut down. Yeah. You know, like now the boys will be here now in a minute. And I'm I'm like, because Leanne had said when she she actually got to the house before we left our home and she said, mom, you just walked down the stairs and you were like, you frightened me because you were just so not there. You were just like, OK, no, I'm OK, love. I'm grand. Now you, I want you to come in. Would you like to see Mark? And she said you were like as if a robot. And I suppose you kind of had to be. How else do you get through? Yeah. That's. I mean, from. Putting your head down on the kitchen table, mm-hmm. him running to get your phone. Mm-hmm. It's really kind of hard to put your for me, like as an, mm-hmm. you know, to get my head around that, like how, how the next thing, your house is jammed full of strangers, and how you're supposed to be like, okay, I'll switch into this, like, mm-hmm. it's really. I think it's I unimaginable. Just, like it is, and I, I, there's nothing. It's not like you have anything to draw from yeah, or yeah. in a, a similar experience or a similar emotion or yeah you've like ne- a, you're you're nag- navigating it as you're doing it like it's kind of like you're and, like and a you're fish not, out of water like literally and and I just remember thinking I I went from when I when I when I meant by saying I wasn't worrying I wasn't because I think for me worrying is like what am I going to do how am I going to tell I was yeah. like shut down like yeah why right, I have to you do were this. probably dealing with Literally second by second at that point, mm-hmm. not minute by minute, yeah. but just yeah, f- each frame yeah. at a time. Uh, that's I couldn't put it better. Honestly, that's it, it was lit like and a second was like an eternity. Yeah, yeah. Everything was in slow motion. Everything was blurred. Yeah. Everything was there was no clarity. There was no start and stop. There was no. It was just. I this isn't reality. Yeah. It's too much to make sense of. And the person I needed in the situation to stable me and ground me and help me get through it was the person that was no longer there. So that in itself, I'd never been in something so horrifically traumatising or scary without him. Like never, there's nothing to compare to that, but I'd only ever done stuff on yeah. some level of of, of fearful um, with him. So, you know. Yeah, he was I, your person. Yeah, yeah, so, but I remember the boys coming and I think they thought God loved them and they were 10 and 11 at the time. So I think they thought when they got to the house, they saw like both grandparents in one grandparent's house. Unusual. Uh, lots of aunties and uncles from both sides. Again, like I think they might thought, are we having a party? Or like, are we, what's all this, you know? And I remember them coming in and and what's ironic about the whole situation is I was told my mom passed away in the back bedroom when I was nine. I always get upset this way. And they were told in the front bedroom, um, and what we had decided, we briefly had some kind of uh, conversation before they they got there with uh, with Mark's dad. And I said, what are we going to say? Like, you know, they're not stupid, like they're 10 and 11. And we agreed because dad was so in and out of the attic that dad fell. So he fell. And that was what we did. We We, we told him that just for a week, but that just to, it mm-hmm. was too much for our heads to get around. Mm-hmm. I, there was no way they were going to be able to get around. So we, we brought them into the bedroom and we sat them down. It was my aunt, Mark's dad and myself. And I told him and I just said, I'm, I'm really don't want to tell you this, boys, but dad had an accident today and he 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 died. And I will never forget the wails from Alex, the youngest. He was like, no, not, don't you say that about my dad. And like, 
and the other fella just sat there and they're so they're chalk and cheese and or salt and pepper whatever way you want to look at it and Evan would be very he would have been like he still is probably the more responsible sensitive one he was like first thing that came out of his mouth was like who's going to pay the mortgage and I thought like and the other fella's like yeah who's going to who's going to pay for Santa (laughs) (laughs) so they both went to their kind of what you know what their dad was to them I suppose in that moment like if my dad's not here well then who's going to do this Yeah, you know And uh, unfortunately, I suppose for us, because it happened on the Monday, the bank holiday, there had been some gangland murders that weekend. And obviously it's a bank holiday weekend and the whole process then slowed down. Yeah, we we didn't get to bury Mark until the Saturday, which I'm now grateful for till the following Saturday. Um, Because you obviously (laughs) have a postmortem and the coroner um, has to do that. And... uh, yeah, it was really delayed, but it gave us time to, I suppose it gave us time to, because it is was so instant, we had some, I suppose, perspective between... To catch your breath, I Just suppose. to catch our breath yeah. and just, just really, not that, I don't think it hit for a long time, but just to really have some sense of what had happened and and what that meant, I suppose, what that yeah, meant for just everybody. just to let it like sink into your yeah. head. and Yeah, and I suppose, you know, I know I've listened to your other podcast and many of your guests have talked about like the silliness within those few days of who's doing what and you yeah. know what are they wearing and who what are you and like you know I being like oh Mark was a avid fisherman fisherman and he was I was like well the boys need their rods and so they wanted to bring their rod well I wanted them to have their rods up with it and all these silly stupid things and um but they are so needed and so required mm. and so important and such a tribute. Yeah. Like, why would you not spend a week of, like a week is nothing to to yeah. to tribute somebody and to honour them? And like, I don't think a week is enough, to be honest with you, but we were gifted that week. Yeah. Um, And we waked him in his his family home, which, again, I feel is really important. And, you know, it's funny. I, I laugh at the things like I don't know how they carried him in the coffin because all his brother-in-laws and my brothers and that carried him and the amount of stuff that was in that coffin <laughs> you know the way people feel well he can't go without this and he can't go without that but yeah um, the amount of people that came to the house for I think he got to his mum's house on the Friday on the Thursday evening and it was like 24-7 like people were just coming in people were just so shocked what was absolutely unbelievably gracious of his employer like he was, as I said, he worked for the Panning Centre and they closed that day and put a bus on and got ther- uh, counselling for their staff. Wow. And so he made such an indent in people's lives and everyone just said, like, he was the smiliest, happiest person. But I think what I feel about it 12 years on now is that's not sustainable. So when he's gone... Mm-hmm. And now you have to sit in the silence and mm-hmm. try and make sense. But there is no making sense. As you said, there were a couple of incidents but with the benefit of hindsight. Mm-hmm. Not before, because no. they weren't no. noticeable. Um, I do remember the coroner saying at the time, uh, at the inquest, which was nine months later, we were lucky it wasn't too long. But that's like so re-triggering, so re-traumatising. Because it's literally a court case and you stand and myself and my dad had to actually put your hand up and swear, you know, you're telling the truth and all that. And I remember him saying to me, 
at the end, he said, the 13 years I'm doing this, this is the first suicide where I honestly am telling you, I do not know why your husband took his own life. There right. was no alcohol. There was no um, alcohol or drug abuse. It was literally 0.2 alcohol in his body. No drug. I was convinced they were going to tell me he had a brain tumour or something and he didn't want me to go through. I genuinely had this big romanticised story mm -hmm. that would make it all okay then. Wasn't he wonderful that he did that for me kind of thing? Um, or God love him, he, he couldn't, you know, even think of, of living, um, being unwell. But he said he was completely healthy. There was no third party. I mean, I didn't realise the level that they go back. Right. I mean, seemingly they go back about two years and check like emails. Okay. They do that. Oh yeah. See, I didn't. I, I, I clearly yeah. wouldn't know that. They would like they kind so they of go try from to the inside find a out. Reason. Yes, they go from the inside out. Okay. And um, he said, "I cannot." He said, "It's to me, your husband com like literally just compulsively took his own life." It was like a moment. And I remember speaking to my GP, and my GP saying, "I've seen it a couple of times before, and it's a bit like an engine misfiring. Like if he had been." disturbed in a moment would you have ever even thought about it again but I would say the one thing I suppose again on reflection Mark would have been a, when I say a melancholic person even though he was the happiest person he was very deep very okay. sensitive and mm -hmm. when he loved he loved and he would have had previous relationships and like he would still have the stuff that he would have had like letters and stuff like that which I never would have a problem with around like that so he was very very sensitive Mm -hmm. If that had anything to play in it, I don't know. But I did say to him, you know, the day when the, the morning of the funeral and they, they asked everyone to leave and they were putting the lid of the coffin on. And I just said to him, I promise you faithfully, I'll never whisper the word suicide. Never. Because I really do feel you get suicide like you get cancer or, you you know, there's you get a, you know, someone get, has a heart attack, someone ha it it must be. To me, it feels like for it, I can only speak. I mean, I know this tiny much about suicide. I know the one I experienced and, you know, it depends on the, the relationship, the dynamic. Each suicide is different. The age, the method, the time and the location. I mean, it just can go on and on and on. But I feel in in Mark's case, you know, like I don't think I think he probably was depressed, but didn't recognize it as depression. Possibly. Okay. Right. You know, his version of depression was he didn't get out of bed. You know, I think he was very high functioning. Yeah, OK. Like a really high functioning, yeah, successful, happy go lucky man that I don't know whether, you he know, was, he was carrying it, but yeah. doing a, a great job of doing a fantastic carrying job. the heaviness, perhaps. Mm. And loving his life so much that wanting to be the best father, the best husband. I mean, people would say to you, and it sounds really obnoxious on my behalf, people would say to me, oh, he's obsessed with you he has you up on a pedestal like and I would have gone ah oh, yeah like you know well it was the only marriage I knew so I just presumed everyone's was like that but like genuinely I think he worked so hard to be so I suppose perfect in all his roles but that's not sustainable and I think yes you can be very considerate and kind towards other people and look out for them and make sure they're okay but you have to look out for yourself and I think he just left himself last I really do. I it's how I've decided to 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 feel about it because there wasn't anything. He never once complained about feeling low. He never once said he was depressed. He never once talked about anxiety. Like nothing around mental health whatsoever. We had a great marriage. He was. It just was completely and utterly out of the blue. 
And for you then to have to deal with that, would it make it any easier if someone says, well, this is why I did it? Yeah, it, it you know, it, that's not going to make it any easier necessarily, is it? Oh. But then at the same time, some people are just consumed with the why, 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 mm-hmm. you know, and the end result is think, the same, isn't it? Well, I think with suicide, mm. it's such a different grief. Because yeah, it's multi-layered, yeah, it's yeah. multifaceted. It's yes. got so many elements and each one is unique and individual mm-hmm. to the next. Um, and you have to, I suppose, what we forget in suicide is that the victim is the perpetrator also. Right, yeah. So, so I know, suppose that's why you would, anger might be huge for mm. some people because you're angry because you did this kind of thing. That's Do you know what? There's so many versions of anger also because I know I would know people who've had somebody who had long, long um, journey with mental illness and then they they did succumb, unfortunately, to suicide. Sometimes there they have a guilt and an an anger about their own guilt because they're nearly relieved at the like there's so many layers. For me personally, I had three kids. I had a 21 year old, an 11 year old. Evan was 12 six weeks later Mark there's two days between Mark and, and Evan's birthday and Mark would have been 39 six weeks later and, and Evan was 12 and I had these three kids and I went into oh my god now let me put my badge of honour now on this is what I do well people know me for this so I'm good at this I'll have these kids back in school by the 1st of September and we're gonna we're gonna keep going and we're gonna be fine and I've done it before and I'll do it again and I truly believe I had to have my losses to 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 parent my children like I knew exactly how they felt. Mm. It was different in the sense of it was still a loss of a parent at a young age and there was abandonment there, you know, like my dad. So I knew yeah. that sense. Yeah. So I always feel like you're never going to put your hand up and say, can I have that absolute horrific situation back again? And you're never going to wish anybody not to be here. But I, the only, I suppose, gratitude that I have is that I had experienced something that I could help and parent my children through something so, mm. so difficult. But... I just was right. Right, I have three kids. I've got to just, you know. And I remember thinking, speaking with my GP, and you know, the no had raised other issues for me as well, which was really, really difficult. And I remember thinking, oh, will I go and will I? Do I need to take something? And I remember him saying, you know, I'm, I could give you something temporarily. And I thought, no, I'm not depressed. I'm grieving, and I have a job to do, and I just haven't got that luxury right now. And as wonderful and as self reliant as that was I do remember later on speaking to a lecturer and, and, and talking about this story and, and she said to me but you do know self resilience does not equate to self care and I thought wow like mm. that was I've done that since I was nine mm. you know like let's just get on with it be positive wear this badge of honour I know how to do this I'm used to it because it really does I suppose grief depends on your pre life experience and how you then go into your grief I think um, but I, I had these three kids. Leanne was supposed to actually move to the UK that year with her boyfriend, um, now husband. But um, she again graciously said, no, ma'am, I'll, I'll stick out the year. So that I really needed that little bit of stability for that year. So we we knuckled down, the three of us. And it was really every day was, I suppose, the ripple effect of suicide as well. And then, you know trying to do everything as one parent when you've had two and one child would be doing well and then this one would fall apart you know and that continued then and Leanne moved to to Scotland the following year and 
I was just like mopping up things constantly to the degree whereby about four years in, I had decided I wanted to, I'd asked the kids if they wanted to move about a year before and they'd said no. And um, absolutely not. No, 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 no. And then this year I asked them again. They kind of didn't give me the same reaction because the house was hugely triggering, like hugely triggering. And I went and got the attic renovated and put into a bedroom and I went up and slept there. And mm. everyone's like, are you crazy? Like, listen. Did you get comfort in that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And mm -hmm. I felt safe there, mm. which is sounds really strange, but I did actually. And we changed everyone's room around into a different room. So the perspective was different in the house. We, you know, they, the, there was used to be like glass because it was a terrace house, there was no landing window. So they used to have glass between, you know, on top of the, the bedroom door. So I got them filled in and so it wasn't on view. And so we did a lot of things and we really did make it a happy home again, you know, to, to a degree. But I felt for moving forward, it probably wasn't. And again, the whole fishbowl living in a cul-de-sac, everyone now knew my business. There was neighbours at the inquest, you know, all that and stuff that you wouldn't want anyone to know about. So, um, you know, just to quickly mm. mention that, you know, mm. I see a lot of people, obviously the work I'm doing now, I see all types of loss and mm. all the intricate details. And that's a huge thing. People say inquests are just I know there's one girl who's trying. She has a petition to try and stop the media printing, you know, people's yeah. personal details. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. And like, it's funny because the guards are amazing. They really were very upfront mm. about that from the beginning. Now, I don't think they're allowed at the coroner's court anymore. OK, I think that stopped. Um, and but then I'm kind of back and forth with the whole reporting on it because you're not I don't think you can use the word suicide on in certain media. Oh, really? Which I think is like it's not adding to the yeah, stigma. Yeah. The word has to be said, you know, yeah. so, um, yeah, it's 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 very difficult and you might be getting somewhere in your healing process. And then the inquest, because it can be anything from nine months to two years. A couple of years, yeah. And, and then you're, you're back there back again. Into it. And you're not back there in a way that you want to be. Yeah, it's in the most yeah. clinical, clinical, pulling apart. Strangers, you're telling them your most intimate. It's like it's the mm. intimacy involved in, in something like that. Because, and rightly so, because they do need to know the exact. It's very difficult. But for you, I suppose, um, it's like what really jumps out there is what you're saying to me about resilience. Mm hmm. And how resilient you were. But that's not really looking after yourself, you know, at all. Did you, um, I suppose, after Mark passed, everything that, you know, had ever happened to you and all the loss, I suppose you couldn't really ignore it anymore. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I know nowadays you do uh, therapy. Mm -hmm. So you've obviously gone on a journey of yeah. uh, I suppose, sitting with your pain. Yeah. Would that be right in saying? Yeah. 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 I think what happened to me about four years after Mark passed, the kids were finally on an even keel, the three of them at the same time. So the lads were 16, 15, Leanne was in her mid-20s getting married and it hit me. Mm. And, you know, I'm I'm not, not proud to say this, but I what I will admit is that I got to a point whereby the burden of the story the fear, the horror, the tragedy, the, everything that went with this. I was like, I can't do this every day for the rest of my life. I cannot do this. How am I going to do this? This is suffocating me. It's I feel claustrophobic. I can't breathe. 
I just want to be like who I was before. You have a complete identity crisis because you you just don't know how to be. I didn't know how not to be someone's wife and I didn't know how to be somebody who everybody knew my business. And so I got very unwell, I'd say about year four. And it's something that we kind of say it's been, you know, named like passive suicidal ideation, whereby I was just like, oh, well, just walk across the road now. I wouldn't do that to my family or but like if, if I got hit by a bus or, you know, and I found myself doing that. I think I'd done it a couple of times and I was deeply ashamed. Like I knew and I was like, what am I doing? And then it passed and I'd be fine for another period of time. And then I'd maybe take a corner and I wouldn't kind of. And I thought, no, this is this. This is not good. So I remember going to um, my now fiance, Pete and, and Leanne and, and saying, I'm, I'm not doing well. I'm actually not doing well and I just can't take this burden because everybody thought I was, you know, I was in a relationship at this point. I was in a new home that we'd moved to and, but I wasn't. I kind of laugh here because I think like, <laughs> I I laughed to myself going, I can only imagine that great now and she's the happiest and great. She met someone yeah. else and ha- so, happy days. Absolutely. But Cathy, so much of that was my my stuff because mm-hmm. I felt that's who I had to be. I knew how to be her. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd done it before. I'd be fine. And everybody, you know, not going to make out, you know, I'm so lucky. I, I'm not 65 and my kids were growing up and I was on my own or, you know, I, I didn't have to worry. Like other people might have to worry about finances or, you know, I was I was really like, oh, but look, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. And I never once went, no, you're actually so bloody unlucky. Like this is really not so right. That's, that's the danger really of being, you know, we live in the world now and there's messages everywhere mm-hmm. all the time and you should be this, you should be that, you need mm-hmm. to do this, you need to do that. And like, I suppose the messaging out there is like the goal is you have to be positive and you have to be happy and you have to be fixed and you can't. Mm-hmm. And like, if you keep listening to that, you probably are like, right, I can't, I can't be like breaking down. I can't be yeah. like, I have to be all putting everything all back together again. When in actual fact, that can kind of harm you. It was so harmful. Yeah. For other types of death and loss, mm-hmm. all we feel is complete sadness and devastation. Yeah. You know, and with suicide, you feel the same way. You mm-hmm. feel sadness and devastation and, you know, you're so upset and I, lo- yeah. you, you know, express all this love and why mm-hmm. did you go? Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't be angry at, like my sister died from cancer. Like I never felt like angry mm-hmm. at her. Yeah. But I suppose suicide is the one... Element, yeah, as you choice. said earlier, that the the victim is also the, the perpetrator. perpetrator, and because you're watching everyone else that's grieving, going, my heart is broken, and they're yeah. my angel, you probably feel like I have to swallow down that anger, and I can't really be seen to say mm-hmm. I'm fucking mad at them, like yeah. you know. And like, how do you? And then you don't want to let them no. down either, because you're like, but I love you. I don't yeah. want to be mad at you. And this is the thing, and you were saying there about like you know your sister, um. God rest her, like, and her and her uh, illness. Like, no one goes around and says, oh, my God, you know, he died of cancer. Mm. Oh, my God, you know, he died in a car accident. But also, if you were to look at it, like, suicide is an illness, too. Mm -hmm. So it should be said, like, you know, God love, you know, them. But it is that, oh, Jesus. It is. And then the people also focus on the death. Like, when it's, they just talk about that. Like, Mark lived for 38 years, was the most incredible, remarkable, generous, sensitive, kind, loving father, son, brother, husband. Like, 
that for 38 years but every time someone wants to speak to me about Mark it's always about suicide now I'm grateful for it today because we're getting the opportunity to talk about suicide but like he was a lot more than the last minute and a half of his life I was just going to say that you know that's 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 that evening mm-hmm. or whatever that yeah. those minutes yeah should not be all that's spoken no. about when no. he's his whole life you know, and we don't do that with other deaths. We don't no, do that we with don't other at deaths. All. And, and sometimes people do, I suppose, like everyone always says, I don't know what to say. Like, all you need to say to somebody is, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Mm-hmm. Like, if that's because, unfortunately, with suicide, it's very easy to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I know. You we know, both spoke about that. You, yeah. you, you'd be afraid to yeah. say the wrong thing. And I'm, people think, say, think one, I'm a therapist and, and, you know, and two, I've experienced suicide personally that I'm really okay with the subject. I'm actually probably more nervous talking about suicide because mm. I'm so mindful of the other, you know, I, I actually used a, a, a picture yesterday on my, my page, on my Instagram page, and it's a, a, the reality versus experience. And it's a picture of an elephant and there's three people blindfolded. One is at the trunk and thinks it's a snake. One is at the side and thinks it's a wall. One is at the back and thinks it's a rope. All the same, rea- you know, experience, but a different reality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, the, the, my fiance, Peter, I'm with, he lost his brother. Completely different circumstances, a completely different di- relationship. So the mm-hmm. dynamic is different. He didn't live with that person. They were grown men and adults and, and had their own family. So there wasn't that in, like instant miss of not being at the breakfast table, mm. you know, and the shame and guilt that people feel does not come alongside with other griefs. And you'll have good days and you'll have bad days and you'll actually, you know, I could have, I suppose the healing process is a year, like you could be fine for six months and then have a really bad day and then you get annoyed with yourself. I've been doing so well, but that's what the actual healing process is. It's Mm. until you get to a place. It's not linear. No, it's Mm. like back and forth and back and forth until it doesn't, it makes you sad. It, it, It is something that you wish for everybody involved didn't happen but you know it doesn't hurt you in the way that it did mm-hmm. initially I suppose um, when you think of Mark now how do you feel I miss him most on the good days wow yeah oh yeah I miss him for like my kids have done everything without him. Like, absolutely everything. I miss him. At three grandchildren, like, he'd have three grandchildren now, so. Wow. Yeah. I just miss his laughter. I miss his cheesy big grin that he had. And I miss, I miss, and listen, my life isn't complicated now, but I miss the life that I had that was uncomplicated. Yeah. Yeah. I just wish he was here to enjoy his, you know, it's a beautiful sunny day and he'd be like, oh, I'd love to go fishing today or the lads having their first pint, you know, they're 24 and, and 22 now. And, you know, Leanne has like didn't have him at our wedding and, you know, just those days are the hardest. They're the so hardest. You miss him in for the right reasons then as well, as, mm-hmm. you know, because you're focused on exactly as we just said, it's all about, you know, we, we have spoke about suicide mm-hmm. because it's important. But again, like, that's not what you're thinking about. What you're thinking about and how you miss him most is who mm-hmm. he was and the good parts mm-hmm. of him and the fun and the laughter. Yeah. 
And that is the heartbreaking because to part me, too. I think, yeah, I think for me that has got smaller. And I don't think it ever will for other people. Hmm. And him as a person and a man has got bigger. Mm-hmm. The further I've come away, like I'm, we're 12 years now, it was 12 years on the 1st of August. So I think I just realise that it is probably, a, it, well, I know it's a lifetime journey in, in healing, but with suicide, it's it's ro- it's a rocky, rocky road. So you now uh, work as a therapist. I do. I went back. Do after. you work with clients? I do. Yeah. Wow. So I'm working as a therapist since 2019 and wow. I'm in my own private practice now. Uh, just over here. And it's called? Flourishing Therapy. Flourishing Therapy. Yes. So on Instagram, you're Fiona's Flourishing flourishing Therapy. Yeah. Yeah. And And do you love it? I just love it. It is such a privilege, Mm -hmm. such an honour. And I never thought I'd like even doing the degree, like the degree is is, is a tough degree. It's four years. And, you know, even everybody that does the degree to say, oh, like, even if I don't make it, even if I don't use it, what a wonderful degree to do, because you do get to learn so much about yourself and um, and situations that we all come as we all come across, you know, issues. We're not going to not we're we're human beings. It's inevitable. But I suppose I just love sitting with people. I know I'm mm. doing it here in my own little way. I know. You absolutely <laughs> are. Like it's 100%. so funny, though, because that's like I feel like my next step. I, I'm, oh, I'm really yeah. toying with it. I'm like, I want to be a psychologist. I'm so interested in it. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm like, well, when you say it there, mm-hmm. you know how you're saying I love sitting with people. I'm like, so do I. It's, what like is it's, it? It's Why wonderful. are we attracted yeah. to this? Yeah. It's funny, but it's just because you can really, I don't know, it's just a part of you that can just understand the other person. Mm-hmm. It's just like a connection, isn't it? I think we're hardwired for connection. Mm. We really are. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's, we need it, you see. Absolutely. That's the issue. I don't yeah. think we can sur- survive without it. You know, I agree. And I, you, like you see clients, I mean, not all sessions are wonderful and some such sessions clients go out and you can see they really, you know, feel like lighter and God love other sessions where they would feel like myself. I still go. I don't know what I do at my own therapy, but Same you, here. yeah, you, 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 you walk in, you're like, right, OK, that, that was heavy. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, because I um, I still do my therapy and uh, yesterday I had a session and Sometimes I'm like, oh, I've nothing to say now. Like, I've nothing to talk about. I don't <laughs> feel like, will I cancel it? I'm not arsed. I'm not bothered. And I never took a breath <laughs> yesterday. I was like, blah, 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 blah. You're like, where does it come from? Because literally before and I convinced myself, I've, I, I don't even have anything to talk about. And then I was like, Bleh. Verbal diary. <laughs> yeah, I know, funny, I'm the same. It? And it's, yeah. it's a bit like the gym. I don't know anybody who leaves yeah. this session that doesn't find something in yes. it that they're great You never for. regret Not it. Not always yeah. great, but like you'll find something. <laughs> well, you never feel like going. But see, the gym yeah. is therapy as well, yeah. isn't it? But I kind of feel now that I'm, I'm, you know, I've gifted, like I've got so many different experiences that I can relate to. Like, yeah. so I've co-parented, I've, you yeah. know, lost a parent, I've lost a, uh, uh, my husband. So there's a lot that comes into the room that not that I would ever bring anything belong to me into into a session, but it, it's it just makes me have a far greater understanding mm-hmm. of where someone might be. Or, But it does help you because everyone that I talk to, whatever it is, it just helps me. Mm. I've learned some every single person and I've talked yeah. a lot now that I talk yeah. to teaches me something. And for you today, so this, I should start doing this. Well, I put myself under pressure <laughs> then I'll be like, shit, I can't come up with something. But you, what what you've taught me today is 
that sentence where you said the resilience that yeah. being resilient is not the same as self-care. Yeah. yeah. Like so that piece will stay with yeah. me forever. I'll remember you saying that to me. Because yeah. so. I think I think our self-esteem gets a battering when we're yeah. grieving. Yeah. So we need to sometimes say, OK, I, I can be self-reliant. I can do that. I can be strong. We're being told to be strong all the time. But there's so much strength in saying, no, I need to back off now yeah. or I need to. Like and our feel. boundaries can go all over the place, too, when we're grieving. Mm-hmm. We'll be, you know, we either put like massive walls up mm. or we have these little tiny hedges and people are jumping all, all you know, over. over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that I remember hearing that and thinking, wow, I thought I was doing everything right yeah. I was exemplary, nearly like gold star in my grief when actually it came back to bite me because I didn't allow myself that luxury that I was given to my children, that I was given to in-laws, that I was given to my brothers and, you know, and sister-in-laws like, and, and are you OK? And because it's a great burden with, with a, a suicide grief also because it, it does filter through, mm. you know, and you're kind of worried about other people's families and their connections with their families and how are they managing the suicide? Because, it, you know, like, you know, if, if you met somebody and they said it was my brother-in-law or it was my sister-in-law or it was my... That's still massive in that family. They have mm-hmm. to sit down with their children. They have mm-hmm. to talk that through. Mm-hmm. They have to... So you're also really mindful of what that death has done around to other you. And that's, yeah. that's a heavy thing to carry then, isn't it? You don't have that again with, with other one, yeah. with other gr- grief, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, no, it's a great privilege to, to sit and, and work as a therapist. Fiona, uh, unfortunately, we have to... Cut it, cut it off now but I I could have sat here all day know, <laughs> and talked too. to you thank you so much but listen just a huge thank you for coming thank in you. you're a wonderful person thank and you, it's you such an honour to hear about Mark and so to uh, learn the things I did from you today so thank you for being here you are so welcome thank you so much thanks